Good evening. As Mark said, I always appreciate that resounding response <laughs> to that remark. So you've attained the end of day, well, almost the end of day three. We still have a few hours to go. I think I just disconnected. No, I didn't. So I'd like to um, add my, my appreciation for your persistence and your determination and your patience and your kindness and all of these beautiful qualities of heart that you have been cultivating in the practice that you have been doing. This afternoon, uh, as I sat in uh, for the questions with Sharon, I was struck by how many questions she answered with uh, the response that what we are cultivating is balance. And she was very gracious in the sense that she knew that I was going to give a talk tonight on equanimity. <laughs> and so she never mentioned the word. <laughs> but in fact, that's what she was talking about. So tonight, uh, we are going to continue the talks that we started uh, with Mark on, on the first night, uh, speaking about mindfulness and metta and the juxtaposition of the two in practice. And Sharon speaking last night, continuing to speak about that last night and introducing uh, what she described uh, as the four Brahma Vihara um, as metta, loving-kindness, uh, karuna, compassion, mudita, uh, appreciative joy, or joy for the joy of others, and uh, upeka, equanimity. So that's the order in which one usually sees them listed. But uh, we're jumping from uh, metta to equanimity tonight. And uh, as the week goes on, we will be talking more about compassion and mudita. Um, we, I think it's really good that we're talking about equanimity because it really is a quality of mind and heart that, um, as Sharon didn't say today, <laughs> means balance. And uh, that it's a, it's a most helpful practice and a most helpful, a most supportive understanding of uh, the fact that we are really cultivating all of these four qualities together, that we may talk about them in a linear fashion, because that's just how it is with words. But in fact, when we uh, examine them or when we, uh, when we approach them in practice, what we realize is that they are all interdependent, that, that the quality of compassion uh, arises when metta meets suffering. The quality of uh, mudita or sympathetic joy or appreciative joy arises 
when metta, the heart of metta, meets uh, the joy of another. And equanimity is the quality that infuses uh, these other three Brahma-vihara by, uh, with the quality of wisdom, that equanimity actually is the understanding of the way things are. And the word upeka, which is the, the Pali word for equanimity that is translated as equanimity, you'll sometimes see translated as seeing rightly or seeing justly or looking over uh, a, a kind of indication that uh, equanimity arises because there is a view that is broader, that is wider than the usual narrow perspective from which, uh, from the small, the perspective of the small self from which we habitually come when, um, when we're confronted with the uh, currents of life. So equanimity is um, a, a most important uh, quality of mind and heart to cultivate. And that is what we're doing here. We're, we're, through these practices, we're actually cultivating the heart of kindness. We're actually cultivating a mind-heart that, uh, that meets uh, the experiences of life with kindness. And so it manifests in these different ways when it meets different experiences. I think that the, um, this, this section from Ecclesiastes uh, sums it up quite well. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. And it goes on, of course, because the great rhythms and cycles of our lives and of nature uh, we see in everything. And equanimity is discovering in ourselves the recognition of those seasons and those cycles. A time to be born and a time to die. A time for joy and a time for sorrow. The Taoists call this life the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And in the language of the Dharma, the Buddha called them the eight worldly winds, or sometimes it's translated as the eight worldly dharmas, and the, the indication of change as we go through life. 
that there's gain and loss, you may have noticed, as we go through our days. There's praise and blame. There's pleasure and pain. And there's uh, what is called fame and disrepute. And as I was uh, reflecting on fame and disrepute today, I realized that we have a culture that is um, that in some ways is, is built around fame and disrepute. We have, even, we have television shows that are built around fame and disrepute and, disrepute, and we have a, a German word that we've borrowed for it, for, for our attitude towards it. We, it's called schadenfreude, where we are um, pleased by the, uh, the difficulties of another, kind of the opposite of mudita. <laughs> So the wisdom of the heart, or this upeka, this equanimity, this looking over, uh, seeing clearly, seeing justly, it's the wisdom of the heart, is discovering our capacity to rest in these seasons of life, these seasons of gain and loss and joy and sorrow and pleasure and pain and blame and praise. But it's hard to do it, isn't it? Because we, we like what I call the credit side of the ledger. We like the praise. We like the gain. We like the pleasure. We like the joy. And we don't want the sorrow or the blame or the loss or the pain. Who likes to be blamed? Anybody raise their hand, right? I particularly love this letter. Furniture company sent this note to one of its customers. Dear Mr. Jones, what would your neighbors think if we had to send a truck to your house to repossess the furniture you've still not completed your payments for? They got the following reply. Dear sirs, I have discussed the matter with my neighbors <laughs> to find out what they would think. They all think it would be a dirty trick of a mean, low-down company to repossess my furniture. So it's pretty hard to act in the world without being afraid of what your neighbors will think and to act to receive blame or without being afraid of the cycles of gain and loss and pleasure and pain. And yet in the discovery of our true nature, we do find a place where we can rest in the midst of those changes. Buddha said, our hearts can wilt as a flower, as a flower does when it's been out in the sun too long. So, of course, we like pleasure, and of course, we like praise, and, and of course, our hearts wilt if, it's, if there's so much under the sway of the debit side of the ledger. So how can we hold these vicissitudes of life and hold them with a sense of wholeness, coherence, 
harmony. Can we actually experience freedom in the midst of all of these immense changes as they churn through our lives? And they, do, they seem to do so inexorably over and over and over again. Can we actually be happy? Can we actually be peaceful? Can we actually be serene? Which is another word that Upeka is sometimes uh, translated as. Can we actually find serenity in the midst of uh, this incessant change, this incessant arising and passing away. So why do we come here? What, what is it we want from life? What is it we really, our deepest uh, desires are for our own lives and for others? It's hard to know whether we want comfort or excitement or pleasure or actually freedom. Yogi said to me, I could be at a party. I could be partying. Why am I here? You know, I could be having a party. So we can constantly try to change the circumstances of life so that we never get the debit side of the ledger and try to set it up so that uh, the credit is all that comes. So are we, have we had much success with that, though? Have we had much success in trying to control this movement of life? Children get older, move out of our homes. Relationships come and go. People age and die. All of these uh, circumstances of life, we've, I think by now we know we can't control them. It's an endless change of circumstances. So how shall we be happy? How shall we find serenity? Shall we do so by tr continually trying to control what is clearly uncontrollable? Or can we do so by learning to let go? And the practice of equanimity is learning deeply what it means to let go. And that is partially what we learn in practice. We get caught, we realize it, and we let go. We get caught, we realize it, and we let go. So upeka, or this quality of equanimity, has the characteristic of balancing the mind before it falls into, um, into extremes. As, as Sharon said today, it's a, we are, our goal is balance. Our goal is balancing our relationship to what is happening. It's not trying to control it and make it a particular way. Good luck with that, right? We've tried that before. So this, uh, this balance, this rest in our being, we sometimes uh, confuse with apathy or indifference. 
it, sometimes indifference or apathy can look like equanimity. It can, it can look like, you know, oh well, you know, things are impermanent, things are changing all the time, so what can I do about it? Da-da-da-da-da-da, right? So why bother? Or why do anything? Why practice? Or why try to, uh, to, to help uh, injustice? Why try to change injustice? Why try to um, contribute to climate change? Why try to uh, do anything? But it's not indifference. It's not insulation or apathy or withdrawal from the world. There's a, uh, it's some, they're sometimes uh, described as the near enemies of these Brahma Viharas. They each have their near enemies, which is a quality of mind that looks like the Brahma Vihara itself, but is really kind of a masquerading of the Brahma Vihara. So I'll get a different husband or a different wife or a different job. It doesn't matter. It all changes anyway. Who cares, right? So that's indifference. And there's a cartoon, Sylvia. The title is Great Dreams of Modern Science. And she's sitting there reading about the new genetic discoveries in the first panel. And in the second panel, she's sitting in bed, and her form is changed. And she looks younger and more beautiful. And she says, I dreamed that after I ate some genetically altered tomatoes, their traits were transmitted to me. I stayed young and firm forever. <laughs> and in addition, I was resistant to budworm. <laughs> and there's another cartoon in The New Yorker with these two beautiful women in bikinis with firm bodies, you know, diving into the ocean. They are saying, I never thought it would be this much fun to be in our 80s. <laughs> so we have a lot of different ideas about how to respond to life, how to respond to this, uh, this movement of life, that if, if I don't get too close to it or if I you know, really try to uh, mold it into what I want, then I'll be safe and I'll be okay. And that's a kind of movement of indifference and a backing away, and that's not equanimity. And the other is if I do it right and if I, you know, constantly, if I get some genetically altered traits, somehow all these things won't affect me and change me, right? But they will. They always do. We're a new person every day, every moment, every month, every year, every week, every experience. We become new. And equanimity understands these changes. Our bodies change, the cells change, they say, every seven years. Even as you sit with the breath, you see the changes in the breath. As you sit from moment to moment with your metta practice, you can hear the difference in even the tone of how the, how the phrases are delivered, how the wishes are delivered. Everything is changing constantly. So we discover this capacity of heart for uh, opening. And the qualities, it has a quality of fearlessness and deep compassion. 
and centeredness, centeredness that allows us to see life just as it is and not expect that the winds that we don't like can be silenced or exiled or banished forever. And what that comes from is this looking over that upeka can be uh, translated as. It's this ability to see in a vaster perspective the actual web of life. One of my teachers gave me an exercise once. He said to uh, lie down and look up at the stars. This was, of course, not in February in Barry. <laughs> he said, imagine you're lying at the bottom of the earth and you're stuck to it. And you're looking down into the stars, so you change your perspective. And that you're being held and you're kind of being pulled against this body of the earth, which you are, of course, the mother of earth by her arms of gravity. And you look down into endless galaxies of space. That's what the heart of equanimity is like. It rests in the vision of these night stars. And we have 10 billion galaxies and of a billion stars whirling around in oceans of life of suns and supernovas and great distances. And even on our own planet, discovering and remembering that we're just a little piece of life that has been a long and wondrous story. And you, can, you get a glimpse of it, too, by looking from that macrocosm down to the microcosm of a spider's web. Because if you look into a spider's web, you will see that every small strand in that web is uh, completely necessary to its integrity and to its structure. And that our, our, we have an inability to really see in that large way, or even in the small way with the web, the total interconnectedness of life as it is. Our perspective is not large enough to hold all of the causes and conditions that come to become and manifest in this moment. We are all here together. How did that happen? How did that happen? What brought you here? If you look back at your lives, you can see that Every moment in your life was bringing you to this moment, to this moment where we are all together in this room reflecting on the Dharma. Each one of us brings into the web of this intricate web all of the causes and conditions that have been created in our lives and that have been created around our lives. This is from... Uh, a wonderful book called The Universe is a Green Dragon. The oxygen content of our atmosphere is near 
This was created more than a billion years ago by some of the earlier forms of life. If the concentration of oxygen were increased by only a few percentage points, the conditions would become such that a single lightning strike could turn an entire forest, a whole continent, into flame. On the other hand, if the concentration of oxygen were lowered significantly from its present level, we would not have the energy supply, the chemical potential energy necessary for advanced forms of life. Somehow, this Earth has created an atmosphere and kept it balanced for more than a million years at just 21%, provided as much chemical potential as possible for the creation of the animal kingdom while avoiding a situation of terrestrial catastrophe in the spontaneous outburst of fires. And we think we know, right? We think we know. And so we don't make room for the mystery of life. In the face of change, constant change, and in the face of the uncontrollability of life, everything moving, changing, vibrating, and pulsating in rhythm, the rhythms of the planets, the ebb and flow of the tides, the cycles of night and day, the cycles of the seasons, and even in our own lives, the flow and movement that we've seen over all of the years, this unceasing parade of unpredictable experience. And as Sharon reminded us today, uninvited by us. So all of these experiences that each of us has had, we bring to the web, we bring to this moment. And Storm Jameson calls it an unrepeatable miracle. Each moment is an unrepeatable miracle. So we may have, during some of the debit events of our lives, thought them unfortunate or unlucky, or that they shouldn't happen, but they were bringing us here. So life is not this series of uh, chaotic events, but a beautiful kaleidoscope, a beautiful pattern that is um, created by all of the causes and conditions that are um, expressed in to life. And sometimes it's hard to embrace the painful. It's hard to embrace the difficult times as being part of the whole. We've all had our heartbreaks and our sadness. And it's hard to feel as connected to the difficulties as it is to the pleasures and the praise and the pleasant and the easy and the fortunate. So instead of trying to control it, we're manipulated into what we think should be happening. 
Can we simply open to what is here? Can we simply meet our experience just as it is with that clear seeing, with the just seeing that uh, equanimity is? Can we meet it with wisdom? Can we loosen our attachment to some particular outcome that we think should happen? Because sometimes we think we know. All the time we think we know, right? And yet, as Rumi says in his poem, The Guest House, these misfortunes may be clearing us out for some new delight of which we are unaware. So we learn this trust in the midst of all things when we sit on these cushions and these chairs and these benches, a kind of stability or balance or ease. We sit and all of these things arise. So our practice is like a microcosm of our lives, right? Because we sit in 45 minutes, my goodness, have you noticed what can happen, right? You're doing this simple practice, you know, you're asked to just do something really, really, really simple. It's to just repeat four phrases. What could be simpler, right? What could be a problem? And yet all of this, all these whole worlds arise, right? Of shame and the inner critic and the judgment and, and the doubt and the questioning and, um, and the, the physical, difficult, physically difficult sensations and all of these things arise. And you, you include all of it in your awareness and your loving kindness. That's what we're supposed to be doing anyway, right? We're not pushing it away. We're not trying to make it different. We're not thinking that something's wrong because that's what's arrived. But we're including, we're embracing all of these experiences in our awareness and our metta. And you sit and there's rapture and pleasant and along with uh, the worry and the fear and the expectation and then the beautiful divine thoughts and then uh, the bliss and then the, the pain and then the difficulty and then the ease. And you sit in the center of those and you sit there in the midst of it with an even balance, a radical shift, as Sharon called it this afternoon, a radical shift in our perspective, a radical shift in our relationship to experience. Consider Rosa Parks. She got on the bus. She sat down. They said, you have to move. And she simply said, I'm not moving. I'm going to stay where I am. And she refused to move from her seat. And that's what you do in meditation. You take your seat. And you don't give it up. And they said, we're going to do this, and we're going to do that, and we're going to arrest you, and we're going to take you off to jail, and this will happen, and that will happen. And she didn't get off her seat. And out of that sense of connectedness with herself, and with what is true, and with the earth itself, and that kind of strength and determination and balance, the whole civil rights movement was born and grew. And I know she didn't have it in her mind, because she said it a million times. 
She was just tired. Right? She said that. Why didn't you give up your seat, Rosa? I was just tired. I just wasn't going to give up that seat. So what about that for you? To sit there with that determination and hold that seat. And equanimity is to discover and to awaken and to sense deeply your true nature, your basic goodness. And the quality of equanimity is that it automatically cleanses and purifies and unentangles our being. And that's what we're doing. We are working in that way. This is from the Tao. The ancient masters did not try to educate people, but kindly taught them not knowing. When they think they know the answers, people are difficult to guide. When they know they don't know, people can find their own way. It's simple, but maybe not so easy. No great plans, no great exploits, no great expectations. We just do the work. We just sit in our seats and see what is true. So there is a chant that they do in uh, the monasteries of Asia, which goes like this. All beings are the recipients of their own action, of their words and their speech, their body and their minds. They are the heirs, the inheritors of their actions, born of their intention, related to the volition of their heart, Their actions produce their sorrows and their joys. Whatever they do for good or for ill of that karma that they create, they will receive this. And in the Brahma-Vihara practice, combined with the metta and the compassion and mudita practice, we also have a, 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 a phrase that is repeated in the equanimity practice which is very helpful as a foundation and a support for the metta practice. And it goes like this. It says, all beings are heirs to their karma. Their happiness or unhappiness does not depend upon my wishes for them, but upon their own choices. And to know that this is not a cold indifference but a true deep understanding of how causes and conditions create effects. And so when we say that we are accepting the cycles of life, 
and that we're accepting these laws of life that we can't change, that are not within our control. This is the beginning, not the end of our practice. Acceptance as the beginning allows us to see clearly. And when we are, when we see clearly, then it's possible to respond appropriately rather than to react to whatever experience is coming our way. So, the, so it's not an indifference that leads to inaction, but alive, an alive and uh, wise understanding that leads to appropriate response. So that when we act, we are not making things worse, which we tend to do. I remember as a child of the, as a part of the generation of the 60s, how we used to fight for peace, right? How out of ignorance, we thought that that was the appropriate response to what we saw as an unjust war. That we thought that by adding our own war to this war, that somehow peace would come from it. It was not seeing justly, it was not seeing rightly. So, so to, to really understand that our efforts are not um, ended because we understand and accept what is true. And that even though we may have the deepest intention for good and we act on that deep intention and things turn out a different way, they don't turn out the way we wish they would. It doesn't mean that we were wrong. It doesn't mean that something's askew or that uh, things shouldn't be this way. It means that all of the causes and conditions that have contributed to this particular situation have naturally um, resulted in the way it's turned out. And it doesn't mean that then we stop. It means that we continue to, to look from moment to moment to moment for the right response, for the appropriate response. And so even with our, with our meta practice, even though we may be um, wishing for all of these wonderful things for ourselves and for our benefactors, the people to whom we have much gratitude, and for our beloved friends, things may not work out the way we would like them to work out. And it doesn't mean that we stop our metta practice. It doesn't mean that we stop our compassion practice. It doesn't mean that we stop practicing. It means that we continue to, to uh, exert the effort based on our intention. Still with the, uh, with, with the deep wish for our own happiness and well-being and for the happiness and well-being of others. So in, in equanimity, there is not only the possibility of continuing to 
have these deep intentions of kindness, but also the intentions of compassion. To see all of the changing circumstances in the world and really not know, really not know what a person needs. We can't know what is supposed to happen. And there's tremendous resilience in our being so that even when things don't go as we planned or as we would like, we are still resilient. We're amazing. As human beings, we live in hot, cold, all kinds of different circumstances. Look at what we're living in now, right? In this cold, arctic place. But that's part of our equanimity, our capacity to meet life just as it is, to meet the cold, to meet the heat. We get tested over and over and over again, and we have all sorts of uh, different kinds of reactions, but we also have this tremendous resilience. The The great miracle that we've been speaking about this last three days of spiritual life is that our hearts can change. It's a great miracle. And we know that our lives will not be without sorrows and they will not be without difficulties. And the earth will probably not be without the hungry and the homeless and injustice I've worked in a maximum security prison for women and have seen a lot of injustice. And I've known that that kind of injustice could be mine with just a small turn of fortune. We just don't know. We'd like to think that the world could be without war, that with all the food that we produce on the planet, we know that we have enough food produced so that nobody, no child should go to sleep hungry. And yet that is how it is. Looking back on recorded history, we can work and work and work and work, but we don't know how, whether it will ever be completely uh, as we would like. It's a mixed bag of sorrows and beauty and joy and great difficulties. And it is possible to discover in the midst of it peace, serenity, kindness, and compassion, not apart from, but in the very face of our humanity, of the struggles of who we are as people on this earth, and all of the sorrows and the difficulties we face. We have many blessings, and we have much beauty. 
it all, it, all of these mixed circumstances fall on all of us. And in the same way, metta is possible for everyone. The, another uh, translation I've heard of metta is sun, is the sun. Say so that metta is like the sun that radiates on everyone without prejudice. They are like the sun or the rain that falls on everyone. Loving kindness, compassion, equanimity could be compared to space or the great sky that holds everything. The great heart that opens and allows all things to be touched with wisdom and balance. When the Buddha was enlightened, his eyes of understanding opened. And he looked out and he saw beings that were born and dying in every form according to every circumstance and, and karma. And it is said that tears of compassion rolled down his face because he saw beings who wanted freedom. And often out of confusion and ignorance, they were doing the very things that led to suffering. And that's what led him to begin to teach, to see every kind of circumstance and every place into which beings are born, and to see that with, to see that with understanding, and to bring to it a heart of kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity. We can come to our best home. We can come to our best home. When we are at peace, in spite of the circumstances of our lives, when we are in our being peaceful, everything becomes peaceful around us. We give an amazing and tremendous gift. And it's something that the world needs very badly. It is in desperate need of this peace. And all the people in our lives and all the things that it ripples out to will be affected by it. Your place of peace, your sense of being centered and open. So let's sit for a moment. And as you sit, see if you can find or sense the peace of the Buddha, the Buddha mind within you, the sense of your basic goodness, the sense of your amazing potential, 
for wisdom and joy, peace, kindness, and compassion. Opening your heart with peacefulness and bringing it to rest. Breathing in and breathing out, being here, resting in the moment, resting in your heart of kindness, knowing that all of the ideas that we have about how it's supposed to be are just ideas and that things are just as they are. Thank you for listening. Time for walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.